Hebrews chapter 3. We're going to begin reading in verse 7 this morning and continue on to the end of the chapter. Just a little context. Um, he is quoting from the Old Testament, and, and some of the passages that um, he'll be referencing will be like the passage in Numbers chapter 14. But here, here's what you need to keep in mind as far as uh, the overall picture of the Bible goes. His point in comparison, which I'm not going to draw out too much during the sermon, is that the people that followed Moses who did not believe and who did not continue to walk in accordance to the covenant, um, when they turned away from Moses and uh, from his leadership, they lost the ability to enter into the type of promised land in Canaan. Uh, But the author of Hebrews is now saying in comparison, if you turn away from Christ, you won't just miss the type, but you'll miss the antitype. You will miss the reality of the eternal promised land. So be very careful not to turn your back on Christ. That's his, that's his point. But with that being said, let's hear the word of the Lord, uh, beginning in cha- verse 7 of chapter 3. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the days of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that he would not, they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Let's pray together. Father, we again ask for the help of your Spirit to illumine our minds. Again, as, as David prayed, to soften our hearts, to give us uh, a soil that's broken up, that's ready to receive what you would have for us this day, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. On Wednesday, when the big storm blew through uh, Fenton and the surrounding region, apparently I was in my own little world working in my office. I had the blinds down, so I didn't see anything. And I had my fan on, so I didn't hear anything. I missed the entire storm. Um, However, um, Kathy... Um, called me on the intercom and told me, make sure I save my work because we might lose power. I said, okay, you know, save my work. And I think the lights went out for a second, came right back on. The rest of the church, the lights were off, but mine were still on for some reason or another. So I didn't notice anything. And then all of a sudden, around five-something, I walked out of the office. The church was completely dark. Everyone had abandoned me. And I go outside, and there are tree limbs on my car and everywhere else. And I was like, What happened? I was completely oblivious that we even had a storm. Apparently, in sermon preparation, you just don't pay attention to the outside world. Uh, and I was very thankful that, that uh, Kathy had told me to save my work, but no one told me to save my life. 
And I thought, whew, I'm glad, I'm glad it wasn't like a real tornado or you know, something that touched down because I was thinking this building is probably not the safest place to be in. There's no basement or anything. But all of us, you know, all joking aside, all, all of us would love to be warned if we were in real danger. And that's the whole point of this epistle. Five times the author is warning the people in this church that they're in real danger of falling away from the living God. Anyone who doesn't want to listen to that warning, they have their own lives in their hands and they stand in peril if they don't listen to what he's saying. And so this is the second warning he's given. Now the first one, if you remember, he was warning them against drifting away from the truth. Now he's warning them in a different way of falling away from the living God. I know I've said it before, but it, it bears repeating here. Um, it is not possible, let me stress it, it is not possible for a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ to lose his or her salvation. It's not possible. Because what Christ begins in you, he will finish. He's not writing to those who have lost their salvation or those who seem to be on the verge of losing their salvation. Rather, he's writing to those who have believed in Christ who have seen others walk away, who have seen the persecution that's breaking out around them, and they're afraid. And he's saying, be careful. And it's actually the warning that God uses to preserve their faith, you see. He's, he's not talking about people who have lost their faith, but rather those who have walked away or people who have professed in the name of Christ, have attached themselves to the church of Christ, and yet really have never known Christ. These are the ones that have walked away, and sadly it does happen often, uh, not just in the Old Testament, not just in the church that's written here, but, but in our day as well. So this warning that's given by the author of Hebrews was, was not written for the unbeliever's sake, but rather for the believer to hold tightly to Christ, to know what is my confidence, what is my foundation, what is my surety, my confidence. It's, it's going to be in Christ. But and notice this, in verse 12, he actually refers to them as brothers. So he's, he's, he's assuming that these are Christians he's writing to, not to an unbelieving audience, but rather to a believing audience. And in fact, he warns them to take great care over their own souls, but also the souls of their brothers who also are in the same predicament that they're in, that, that each one of them would not fall away by the deceitfulness of sin. So the, the greatest concern, sort of what wraps this whole passage together, is this concern about the hardness of a heart. And the, the word that the author uses here in the Greek is the root of the word that we have in the English for sclerosis. You know, think of the uh, arteriosclerosis, the hardening of the arteries. It's the exact same word in the Greek that's used there. In fact, I, I, I didn't know this. Mo most of you who are more medically inclined than I am, which is probably 99% of the population here. Apparently, not only the, can the arteries grow hard, but the heart itself, physically speaking, can turn into bone. The flesh can actually turn into bone and harden to the point where eventually someone dies from hardness of heart. Well, obviously he's not speaking of a physical condition here, but rather of a spiritual condition when someone no longer is receptive to the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, even if from uh, the point of, uh, we know later we'll find out in the book of Hebrews that the Holy Spirit can still work in some way in the unbeliever's life, but just not in a salvific way. But here, 
what we need to understand is whenever the word is preached, whenever it's read, in order for it to, for it to be effective for us, the Holy Spirit has to come alongside of the word to soften our hearts in order that we might hear, in order that we might understand God's wisdom, that we might submit to God's laws, and we might believe in the promises of God. Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, we're not capable of any of those things. Naturally, we're all hard-hearted. Since the fall in the Garden of Eden, every one of us are born into sin. We naturally do not want to listen to what God has to say. It's the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that softens our heart in order that we might receive the Word with faith, with love, and with confidence, knowing that that Word was written on our behalf. And so the danger here that's described in this passage is that someone is no longer attentive to what the Word has to say, no longer receiving it at all, and certainly not in a salvific sense, uh, relying upon the gospel that is in Christ Jesus. That seems to be the main point of the passage this morning, that we should take great care that our hearts don't grow hard like some of the unbelievers who have walked away from the Lord, because it's a very dangerous situation to be in. Now, how do we do that? That's sort of the, uh, the point of the whole passage. The author of Hebrews helps, helps us out in this regard. He, he, he talks about three different aspects of the hardness of heart, and I want to summarize them for you by talking about first the, the signs of a hardened heart, and then second, the causes of that hard heart, and then third, what is the deterrent and, and, and the cure uh, for someone who's already begun to, to sense it. And, and the truth of the matter is, even though an unbeliever has a completely hard heart, the believer can grow hard-hearted, even if the Lord softens it later on, but to the point where they, they miss out on the blessing of God and, and uh, can cause all sorts of devastation and, and ensue and all sorts of consequences that, that really not only hurt ourselves as individuals, but hurt our families, hurt the church, all the above because of hardness of heart. So what are some of the signs of a hardened heart? In verses 8 through 10, the author mentions a number of things that are associated with a hard heart for the Israelites in the desert. He speaks of three things in particular. First of all, their rebellion. Second, they're, they're putting God to the test. And then third, they're not knowing God's ways, even though he had revealed his ways to them for 40 years. They still did not know his way. So let's talk about some of those. First, rebellion. Obviously, rebellion is, is probably the clearest sign that someone has a hard heart. Uh, the, the idea of rebellion, literally the English word, means to be at war against someone. The Scripture tells us that we're to be at war against the flesh, against the works of the devil, against the ways of this world. But instead, a hard-hearted person is fighting against God himself. Every single time he gives his law to us, whether it's to warn us against a transgression, meaning going against doing what God tells us not to do, or whether it's an omission, not doing what God requires of us. In both cases, a rebellious, a rebellious heart is one who despises God's law and refuses to submit himself to God's authority. Uh, so he, in the Israelites' case, he told them explicitly, I want you to go into the promised land, and I want you to fight the giants that you're afraid of. Why? Because I have given them into your hands. I have removed all protection from them. And as Joshua and Caleb said, they are bread to you. You will eat them. You will totally demolish them. And yet, they refused. 
They disobeyed. They rebelled against God and did not claim their rightful inheritance. And instead, they wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years because they rebelled against God's clear command with His promises, with His presence. They still would not go forward. It works the same way today. We know that our heart is growing hard if we willingly walk headlong into sin right after God's Word says this is sin. Do the opposite. Right after he says, I want you to do this, and you said, no, I'm going this way instead. That's a clear sign of a rebellious heart. Now, again, most of us know how to hide that well with our, our fellow man. We, we know that we're not supposed to do that in front of other church people. But it's not a hidden rebellion with God because God always sees everything that we do. He knows our thoughts. He knows our processing. It's an open rebellion before God when we hear God's Word, whether it's here in this context or whether it's at home in private. The minute we hear God's Word and think to ourselves, I'm going to go this way instead. That's open rebellion against God's Word. That is a clear sign of a hard heart. Then second, he, also re- he says that they put God to the test. And we see that uh, in the passage we read, they did it ten times. It starts in Exodus 17. That's the first example we have. Uh, when the Israelites could find no water to drink, they immediately begin to grumble against Moses and against the Lord, and they ask this question. This is their test to God. Is the Lord among us or not? We would phrase it differently today. I, think, I've, I can't tell you how many people I've heard of the church say, is the Lord really loving or not? Does he really care or not? He obviously is not doing what I want him to do. He doesn't give a flip about my life. I've heard that many times. Is the Lord among us or not? And then they accuse God of evil, saying that he brought them out of, the wilderness, out of Egypt mainly to kill them in the desert because they don't have anything to drink. How many times have you accused God of evil? That's testing God. That's a sign of a hard heart. That was at the beginning of their journey, but then later on we find out in the passage we read in Numbers 14, and and then later uh, it ends with the same, they're at the same place, Meribah, the same issue, there's no water to drink. God gives them the exact same test to the first generation. It started in Exodus, the very end of that generation, the Numbers 14, the exact same test, and they do the exact same thing. They accuse God of evil, and they say, where is he? That's why he promises and swears to them, you will never enter my rest. He had given them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to hear his word and to respond in obedience. They refused to do it. Instead, they accused him of evil and tested him. Of course, we know that God is the one who's supposed to test us. He tests us in order to prove that our faith is genuine. But when we test God, we're trying to force him to prove that he is good that he is kind, that he is loving, and he is faithful when he's already proved it in a thousand ways in our lives, but we refuse to receive it. No, you have to do it this way, God, according to my time schedule and according to my understanding. You have to do what I want, or else I'm not going to follow you. That's testing God. That's what the Israelites were doing. Again, a clear sign of a hard heart when someone gets to that point in their life where they just don't see any signs of God in his goodness in their life. They, they don't want to see it, but rather they're only seeing all the evil all around them and they're blaming God for it. 
Then the third sign of the Israelites' hard-heartedness, he says, was their not knowing his ways, not knowing God's ways. He had revealed himself to him 40 years. They had seen the plagues. They had seen the parting of the Red Sea. They had seen manna from heaven. They had seen water from the rock. They had seen the Shekinah glory and the cloud of fire. They had seen all of this. And then continual protection from their enemies. All the ways in which God had clearly revealed His ways to them. And yet, after all of that, they were ignorant of His ways. They did not know Him or His ways. Now, most of us haven't seen anything like what the Israelites saw in the Old Testament. But yet, we have seen answers to our prayers. We have seen evidence of God's goodness to us and His help, especially in the moments where we needed it the most. The problem is, when someone grows hard of heart, they forget those things. They forget the answers to God's, to our prayers. They forget what God has done, and they only reflect upon that moment what God has not done for them right then. And they say, God is not what I thought He was. That's surely an evidence of a hard heart. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 3, the Lord says of Israel, He says, the ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know me. My people do not understand. After all that time, they'd seen all this, and yet they did not know God. They did not know His ways. And the very fact that the Israelites are continually grumbling and complaining proved that they don't understand His ways because clearly something wrong when they do not know that God is with them, that God is for them, and that God is good and is going to keep them all through their journey through the wilderness. They don't believe it. They don't see it. They don't understand it. Surely a sign of a hardened heart. So what causes that? That's the second point. What, what, what causes the rebellion? What causes that demanding of God? What, what causes that, that complete ignorance of His ways? What causes that grumbling and that complaining? It always comes down to two things. The heart grows hard because it lacks faith in God's Word and because it refuses to repent when God's Word is brought to the heart. Always comes down to faith and repentance. Those are always the cause. In verses 7 and 8, the writer of Hebrews quotes from Psalm 95, saying, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. So again, it, it, what we have to understand about that context, in fact, we use it as a call to worship this morning. And I didn't know this until I, I studied it this week. In fact, we cut it off just at the point where I said we ought to, but then I was wrong uh, based upon the history of worship in the Old Testament. Uh, we, we finish our normal call to worship in Psalm 95 with the good-sounding words. But in the synagogue worship, every Sunday night, they would quote from Psalm 95, and they would not end with us bowing down and God feeding us like a pastor, but they would end with, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The call to worship was to say, this is a very important moment now. Don't let it happen to you the same way it happened to the Israelites in the Old Testament. You are in the presence of a holy God. Do not harden your hearts when he gives you his word. Now, what we know is David actually wrote Psalm 95, but the Hebrews writer is actually helping us to understand his understanding of the word itself. He, he's saying that it's written by the Holy Spirit, even though we know it was written by David. So in other words, he believes in the inspiration of Scripture, right? That it's written by the Holy Spirit, it's inspired by the Spirit. 
Nevertheless, notice in that passage in verses 7 and 8 that he doesn't say that the Spirit said. Did you pick up on that, on the tense? Instead, he says, the Spirit says. So in other words, immediately, he's not only helping you to understand who inspired Scripture, but he's helping you to see that this is not a dead document that you're reading, that you're holding in your hands. That not only is the word spoken to the original audience in the wilderness, but that it was spoken also to the audience who were receiving this letter in the book of Hebrews. And now he is also speaking to us. Every time the word is read or is spoken, the Holy Spirit is speaking now. If you really understood that, you would be so careful not to close your ears to what's being said. The Holy Spirit is speaking to you at this moment in His Word. And so He says, today, and the today is always a current today, today, you do not harden your heart. Today, you who are listening right now, do not harden your heart when you hear God's Word. But how does that happen? How does someone harden his heart? Verse 12, the author implies that it stems from unbelief, that it is an evil unbelieving heart that leads to a hardened heart. In verse 19, he confirms that case, again, saying the Israelites were unable to enter into the promised land. Why? Because of unbelief. It's always unbelief that causes hard-heartedness. If we really believe that God is who he says he is, as he's revealed himself to be in Scripture, we would never doubt his character. We would never say, who are you? We would never say, you're not who I thought you were because you would believe what he has said about himself. In the same way, anyone who really believes that what God says he will do, that he's promised that he will do, he will do by faith, he will never doubt God's ways, ever. Because he has believed that God is who he says he is, and that he will do what he says he will do. If you really believe that, you will never have a hard heart, ever. Because the word is always accompanied then by faith. In fact, the very idea that a Christian would grumble or complain proves that they don't have faith. Because how can you complain or grumble about God's ways if you know that all of God's ways are good? How would you ever do that? You can't. It's impossible. You can only grumble or complain if you lack faith. If faith does not accompany the reading and preaching of God's Word. A person who is full of the Spirit and has faith does not grumble, but gives thanks. Does not complain, but praises God, even when they don't know what he's doing. In a similar manner, a hard heart grows when a, a hearer of God's word is confronted with sin and with doubt, and yet does not repent of it. For whatever reason, one does not repent after sin it's always due to his hard heart and his unwillingness to repent of that sin. I think you know that the Spirit's job is, 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 is multifaceted. Um, it says the Spirit comes to convict us of, of truth, of righteousness, judgment to come, of sin. That's his job. His, his job is to exhort us and encourage us 
to believe the promises of God, but then also to correct and rebuke us when we have not. And so when the Spirit brings that correction and that rebuke to us, when we hear that word, when our heart is convicted by it and yet do not respond in repentance, immediately our heart grows hard toward the next instance in which the Spirit seeks to do the same thing. Every time we do not immediately repent when the sin is brought to our understanding, we harden our heart to any future work of the Holy Spirit. That's how it works. That's what causes the grieving of the Holy Spirit. When we know what He's doing, we understand what He's saying, and yet refuse to repent. Both faith and repentance have to be exercised at the moment of hearing God's Word. If not, we put ourselves in much greater danger for the next time we hear God's Word. Every time you hear and respond with faith and repentance, it softens your heart toward the next time you hear God's Word. But every time you do not respond, it hardens your heart to where the most dangerous place in all the world to be on a Sunday is actually right here. If you do not respond with faith and repentance. It'd be better for you if you were living outside, not going to church anywhere, and not hearing God's Word than if you're sitting right here and hearing it and yet do not accompany it with faith and repentance. That's why, as I said before, Jesus is condemning some of the towns around the Sea of Galilee, saying your sin is worse than Sodom and Gomorrah's because you've heard God's Word. You've seen my ways, and yet you've rejected it. Sodom and Gomorrah didn't have that benefit. He said it'll be worse for you on the day of judgment if you continue to hear it and yet do not accompany it with faith and repentance. Of course, it doesn't take much for us to veer off in this direction of doubt. So we're not believing, but rather being full of doubt or of not repenting and growing hard of heart, it, it, it can start in a number of simple ways. It's interesting. I, I noticed um, and a simple way, especially for those of us who are more Presbyterian, big-headed people um, who like to study a lot and, 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 and do read the Scriptures a lot and read other books about the Scripture a lot. Uh, I, I noticed there was a time in my life where I began to read Christian books and, you know, so some author is writing about Scripture, but, you know, talking about a lot of other things as well. And then he would get to the point where he would quote the Scripture. And I found that if I thought I knew that Scripture, I'd just skip right past it and just get right back to the man's words. Not really letting the Word of God bring conviction to me. Not letting the Word of God soften my heart to what God says because I had memorized that passage. Or because I thought I knew it so well. I'm like, oh, I know what that is. Skip right past that. Since I came under that conviction, I'm very fearful to do that ever again. When I read a book about Scripture and yet don't read the Scripture, there's something wrong with me. I'm very proud if I think I don't need to hear that Scripture again. Or assume I know it so well that I can never benefit from it again. How stupid, how foolish can that be? But that's one avenue. And I think that's why seminary is so difficult for most seminary students because they become so used to that. Oh, yeah, I know that. I know that. I know that. To the point where they grow hard of heart. doesn't take much. In a similar way, uh, you can grow hard-hearted to God's Word when you read it, but then don't take time to meditate upon it. Again, uh, there are some people in our midst who are more of the box-checker kind of Christian, okay, well, I got, I got a few minutes. I got to read God's Word. Read God's Word. Okay, done that. Next. 
no idea a few minutes later what it said. You're basically inoculating yourself against ever hearing what the Spirit has to say to you. If you're just reading it and then immediately going on with something else, you're not meditating upon it. You're not praying it back to God. You're not asking God to help you to apply it to your life. You're missing out on that. That is another way of hardening yourself against hearing what God's Word says. Sometimes we genuinely think, (laughs) uh, especially in sermons, that certain sins do not necessarily apply to me, but maybe to a friend or relative who's not here today. I know, I know some of you have done this. Some of you even told me this. uh, That, uh, you know what? I wish so-and-so was here today. They need to hear this word. But I am immune to this because I'm so righteous and so godly. You don't ever say it that way. But nevertheless, there is that tendency, right? So so so-and-so really struggles with that sin, but not me. (laughs) The sermon was a complete waste of time for me today. That scripture, it's really for sinners, not for me. Again, we don't say that, but that is the heart of a legalist, is it not? Is that not the heart of the Pharisee who hears clearly the Word of God, but thinks it's for someone else and not for them. How often does that happen in the church, I wonder? Or for some reason, the preacher points out your sin, or maybe even another believer points out your sin, and rather than repenting, you have a tendency to attack the messenger. Uh, Is that not what happened? Joshua and Caleb says, hey guys, (laughs) uh, we need to go in and and take these guys out. They're bread for us. What did they want to do? What was the response? Let's stone them. How dare you? Correct us in this. We know that these guys are way too big for us. We'll just kill you. And so every single time throughout Scripture, how many prophets are martyred simply because they sought to do the work to assist in the work of the Spirit and bring conviction to someone else? Obviously, Jesus himself is put to death for the same reason. No one wants to hear their particular offense brought into the light. Um, The problem is the more we've committed a particular offense, the less we want to hear about it because our heart has grown hard especially to that particular sin, so we don't want to hear it. The author of Hebrews points out that the deceitfulness of sin is one of the main reasons that we're unwilling to repent of sin. Uh, The problem is is sin is so deceptive in so many different ways. Uh, At at first, it it gives us these great promises. We're like, okay, this is good. And then it doesn't fulfill the promise that it makes. Instead of being good, it turns out to be extremely evil, and it comes out to be really harmful to us and to those around us, instead of being something so small that we would think, oh, it's not a big deal, then later we see huge consequences because of this. And then later our heart is so cold to God over something so small of a sin. That's how quickly it happens. And the problem is we all hold these false views of these things. So when someone tries to approach us about any sin... Not only do we think it's small, brief, and in the past, and that we're good, but again, we're hardening ourselves to the role of the Spirit in our lives. So what's the cure? The third point. The first thing we have to do is we have to listen to God's Word daily. We have to read God's Word daily. Anyone who thinks that they're going to grow as a Christian coming to church once a week, it will not happen. It cannot happen. It is impossible. Uh, Keith Green once said in his uh, uh, song, to obey is better than sacrifice. He 
It went on the radio, and half of the Christian community got upset with him because he's, in the song he said something like, uh, he said, uh, if you think you're going to come to church just on Sundays and Wednesday nights, you're wasting your time, don't bother coming at all. And again, you know, that was with Wednesday. Not even, Wednesday night's not even a factor now. It's just Sunday morning. You know, it used to be Sunday, Sunday night, and Wednesday. And he said, you had to, if, you, if that's the only time you come, don't bother coming. And everyone said, well, you are just horrible, legal. All he meant by that was that if you're only getting God's word from the preacher and you're never receiving it, you're never meditating about it, you're never thinking about it, you're never praying about it on your own, you, you, you're, you're already hard-hearted. In fact, I'd say very plainly to you, if you have little desire to read God's word, that is a clear sign of hard-heartedness. You'll find anything to read, anything to look at, anything to do other than reading God's Word. That is hard-heartedness. The minute that you sense that in yourself, you should immediately say, there's something wrong with my heart. I don't want God's Word. Why do I not want God's Word? But yet I imagine there's some here who probably haven't desired to read God's Word in years. I'm telling you plainly, you're hard-hearted. There's no other way to explain it. Hard-hearted. And that should immediately make you say, oh, I need to repent. There's something wrong with me. I don't desire God's Word like I should. It should be uh, the whole point, Moses' statement, he, uh, he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He has the the manna from heaven in mind when he says this, later on Jesus quotes it when he's confronting the devil, if you remember. The whole point of the passage is this. Just as much as the, the Israelites craved bread and needed to have a daily provision of bread from heaven, he says you ought to desire God's Word more than that. More than your daily provision of bread. But the problem is, if you remember half the Israelites were trying to get manna, and they were trying to collect enough of it so that the next day they wouldn't have to go gather any more. What happened? The manna was rotten. How many times in our lives have we tried to rely upon Scripture reading from days before, and yet don't realize how quickly our own heart has grown rotten? Something's not right because we don't desire God's Word uh, it has to be something that's daily. Then once it is read, as I said before, it's not simple just enough to say, okay, well, I'm going to read my five minutes of Scripture, and then, okay, now I'm going to the next. I've done what's the minimum requirement that I have to do. No. Again, there has to be some time lingering in the Scripture asking God to help you to understand how it applies to you. Now, if you don't have time in the morning to do that, then do it at night. If you don't have time to do it at night, do it at lunchtime. If you don't have time to do it at lunchtime, find some other time. You have time. God has given us time for what reason? To know Him. To glorify Him. Your job is a secondary issue. Even your family is secondary to your relationship with God. Uh, you think about... Uh, was Susanna Wesley, uh, John Wesley's mother, Charles and John's mother, 
how many kids did she have again? At least 13 or something like that? And literally, you mean, when you have 13 kids, that's a lot of kids to deal with. <laughs> she literally would take her apron and put it over her head and say, when I have the apron over my head, you don't bother me because that's my time with God. Even her family came second to spending time in God's Word and in prayer. Ultimately, whenever reading God's Word, we have to ask ourselves a couple questions, I think. Um, ultimately, one of the issues in, in the point of testing God is uh, they're, they're testing Him because they are not aware of His ways. So what do you think we should pray when we're reading Scripture? Lord, show me your ways. Show me who you are. If anything, you want to learn from Scripture, it's not just what does God, how is He going to help me today get through this day? No. Ultimately, the first thing you're looking for when you read Scripture is, who are you? And let God's Word reveal that to you. His character, His attributes, His works, His ways, all these. There's the first thing you should learn. But then after that, in addition to that, what do I need to believe? What do I need to trust in in order that I might have a spirit-filled life? What laws should I obey? What promises should I believe? What sins should I repent of? These are the things that, that we ought to look for when we're in Scripture. Again, I'm not saying you have to take hours to do this, but you can't just simply read a long passage of Scripture and just let it sit and then do nothing with it. You have to engage with it, or else you'll grow hard of heart because you heard the Word immediately went in one ear, out the other, and you forget what it says. And so... We ought to pray before we read Scripture. So we're, we're praying, Lord, soften my heart, as David did a couple times this morning. But even as you're reading Scripture, what, what does David pray? Search me, O God, and what? Know my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. Is that something that you pray? Is that something that you're seeking from the Spirit? As you're reading Scripture, search me. Why? Because my heart is deep as a well. I don't know it. I can't fathom it. And my heart is not only deep, it's deceitful. It will deceive me into thinking I'm good when I'm not. And so I have to ask the Spirit to help me even in that. Then even after I read the Scripture, Lord, help me to remember what I have read. I have a bad memory too, guys. <laughs> Help me remember what I read. Help me to think about it today. Not to lose sight of what you've said. And help me to apply it, especially in the moment where that trial comes. Help me to use what I have gleaned from this passage to not sin against you during the moment of trial. Additionally, that's what the point of the Lord's Supper for. If you remember, the, the Lord's Supper is meant to be a time of reflection. It's a covenant renewal ceremony. Christ is renewing his love for us, telling us once again, I finished it. It's done. All you have to do is believe. Repent of your old ways. Believe in Christ. He's done it all. Nevertheless, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul tells us to examine ourselves as we take it. What are we examining? Uh, we're examining our faith to see how weak it really is. Because there are weak spots. We ought to examine it. We ought to examine our relationship with God. How, how much do we really love Christ? Is that seen in, in our works of love? Is that seen in our forgiveness for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? Is that seen 
through our willingness to repent of our sin and to cling to Christ? Are we examining our repentance? These are the things that we ought to examine in that sense. So that we have the normal word, then we have the Lord's Supper that comes alongside of that. Then finally we have the, the fellowship of the church, and that's where he's pointing them to in this passage, and he will again later on. Just the idea that there are other brothers and sisters in Christ here whom also are a benefit to us who can bring some light to our darkness, that can bring truth to the lies that we have believed, that can bring some softening to our hardness of heart. As we are interacting with one another, there should be a softening amongst the brothers and sisters in Christ because there is a natural tendency toward hard-heartedness when we're on our own. John Calvin, one of the reformers, said this, By nature, we are prone to fall into evil, every one of us. And we have various needs of help to help us to fear the Lord. He says, unless our faith is repeatedly encouraged, it lies dormant. Unless it is warmed, it grows cold. Unless it is aroused, it gets numb. Therefore, the writer of Hebrews, he says, wishes us to stimulate one another by mutual encouragement so that Satan will not steal into our hearts and lead us away from the living God. We naturally, every one of us, are prone toward hard-heartedness. Not just the unbelieving professors in our midst, but all of us. We are naturally prone toward hard-heartedness. Just last week, we you know, were very excited about a, a number of the new people that have been coming and new members in the church, but uh, uh, every year we also have to start gleaning the roles. And that means... Sometimes there are people that have made a commitment to the church in the past and for one reason or another have not kept that commitment. We eventually have to erase their name from the role, which is an act of discipline in itself. Now, many of the people that are on there um, have, have moved away. It's a good excuse. And, and others have you know, uh, affiliated with some other church and they just failed to tell us for one reason or another, which is not always good. So make sure you do that. Tell us if you go into another church. You know, we we want to know that. Because we want to know that you're being cared for. You hate me, you hate your session, fine. Go find a session that you like. Go find leaders that you love. And be edified. And grow in your faith. But I'll tell you, out of the 20 or so names that we erased recently, there are some on there who have never made any effort to go to any other church. They have walked away from God. That always sobers me to know that at one time these people were so excited to be a part of the church that hopefully they went to a really long membership class and got involved and served and did all these things. But then something happened where their heart just grew hard and they just walked away. Does that not make you fear? That there are people who have walked away from the church. It's interesting, originally in the Old Testament, those who had fallen away were a little bit different than those who were falling away in the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, they were falling away by literally leaving the church. In the book of Hebrews, they had made a confession of faith, they had joined the church, but then because of the persecution that was breaking out amongst Christians, they left the church completely. Now, that makes sense to us. We, we, we sense and we think, okay, well, they must have fallen away. They were once one of us, but they were not of us. They've left. They've fallen away. 
But if you notice the context that he's using to make his point, he's actually speaking about the Old Testament Israelites who never left the church. In other words, he calls it the congregation in the wilderness. They never left Israel. I mean, there were some we see in, in even in the book of Judges that leave Israel and go somewhere else. But most of them stayed. And yet they fell away from God. That should make us fear all the more. Not those who have walked away from the church, but those who have stayed and yet have fallen away from the living God. The problem is, I think many people think that just as long as they are somehow affiliated with the church, I, I, I've heard even just the last couple of weeks that you know, some give to the church through a check but never come. What does that mean? What do they think they're accomplishing? If, if you're hearing this now, if you're one of those people that are doing that, you're drifting at best, falling away from the Lord if you're not a part of God's church. But what about the rest of us who have been a part of the church for years? I mean, you could be in your 70s or even 80s and have gone to church your whole life and yet not know God. Heart has grown hard toward God and you don't even know it because you've gone through the motions and yet you didn't listen, you didn't believe, you didn't repent and and yet somehow you feel safe and secure because you're still a part of the church. You're still within the walls of the church. Um, one of the, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, he, he writes about this very condition and, and puts it in a very scary context. I think uh, many people wonder why he even wrote this part, but it, it, it's pretty fascinating. When, he, when Christian goes into the house of the interpreter, he, he shows him a bunch of different things to help him understand the Christian life and those who have walked away. In, in, in one room, he, he walks in and he sees this young man trapped in a cage. And he's crying. And in the cage, the man says this. He says, I once was a fair and flourishing Christian, at least in my own eyes. And also in the eyes of others. I was once, as I thought, safe on my way to the celestial city. Safe on my way to heaven. And even enjoyed the thought that I would eventually end up there. But now I am a man of despair, shut up in this iron cage. Now, when Christian asked him how this happened, he says, I, I did not watch as I should, and I was not sober. In other words, I, I wasn't humble in terms of what I really am. I didn't see my sin. I gave free reign to my sin. I sinned against the light of the Word and the goodness of God. I grieved the Holy Spirit, and now he's gone. I tempted the devil, and he has come to me. I have hardened my heart to the point that I cannot return. Christian then says to the, the interpreter, this is a very fearful thing. God help me to watch and be sober and pray that I might shun the cause of this man's misery. In other words, that I might never end up in the same place as this guy has. That should be our response to this passage. Because in reality, did the disciples know that Judas had walked away from God? Did they know it? They had no idea. He did the same things they did. He was with them every day. And yet he didn't believe. He didn't repent. And yet the same thing happens in the church today. There, there are people 
who have been here every Sunday and yet still have not believed and do not repent. And when their sin is brought to their attention, they're mad as dogs. And eventually they sue you. That's usually what happens. It does happen. I've been a few times where we've gotten restraining orders against the church simply because we've said, you've sinned. I, it, yeah. So w- what should we do in light of this? Uh, the, the exhortation that the writer of Hebrews gives is the same exhortation that, that the interpreter gives to Pilgrim. Be watchful over your own soul to notice the signs of hard-heartedness and pray because the whole idea of being sober-minded is the idea that you don't think as highly of yourself as you as you do uh, if you honestly think that you're in no danger of this at all then you're not being sober that's what the scripture teaches you're proud and your very pride is what's keeping you from listening to God's word believing it and repenting of it because of the pride. He says, be watchful, be sober, and pray. And then in every opportunity that you have in the context of the church, exhort your brothers. Talk of the things that are persevering. Talk of the things that are eternal. And perhaps the Spirit will work through these things and through your Bible reading and through your time together with other Christians to keep you sober-minded and to keep you clinging to Christ by faith. You cannot lose your salvation. But I promise you, unless I'm totally wrong statistically, on the Day of Judgment there will be some here in this room who have not believed and who have not repented And they will say, I am safe and secure on the day of judgment until all of a sudden their sins are brought before them and they realize it's nothing of the sort. Deuteronomy 29, verse 19 is the last thing I'll say. Moses says, Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. This is the one that Hebrews is quoting. But this is why. He says, Because there will be some here who hear the words of this sworn covenant who immediately bless themselves in their heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. If your heart is hard, you are not safe. You are safe if Christ softens your heart. Let's pray that that would be the case for each of us. Our Father, we, we pray that you would help us there's nothing that, that keeps us from walking away from you other than the grace of God other than the work of the Holy Spirit oh Lord if we have quenched the Holy Spirit if we have grieved the Holy Spirit by our sin oh Lord bring that to our attention today Lord, help us not to harden our hearts today as they did in the time of the rebellion, but listen and listen carefully so that the Spirit can bring us conviction and repentance and faith and life and hope and joy and peace. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.
Won't you stand with me? Let's sing together. Softly and tenderly.